All right, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 14. So head straight to the back of your Bible, or your phone makes it way easier, your tablet. Revelation chapter 14. We will be continuing on there from where we left off back in June. So back in January, we began a new series that we called Apocalypse Now, and we've been walking through the book of Revelation. So that started in mid-January, and if you've missed any of those messages, you can catch up. They are all online on our YouTube channel. And so we have been walking through, just starting in Revelation 1, going through chapter at a time, verse by verse, just really digging into the text. We've called it Apocalypse Now, and that word apocalypse we typically use to mean the end of the world or some sort of catastrophic event that kind of points to end times. But the word apocalypse in the Greek, apocalypto, just means revelation. That's what the word means. So the book of Revelation, written in the original Greek, was the book of apocalypto. It was the book of apocalypse, not meaning disaster and end of the world. That's not what that word means. It means revelation. And so we have been going through this book, looking at lots of different perspectives and different ways that we can look at at the book, but we have been basically wanting to focus on, as we go through Revelation today, in the 21st century, it is a 2,000-year-old book, we might be living in the end times as we speak, the end times might be 10,000 years from now, we don't actually have any idea, but what we are focusing on is the idea of Revelation, what is the Spirit speaking to us right now? What is the Spirit teaching us right now through His Word, and what can we glean from that? And so between January and June, we went through 13 chapters of Revelation, a little over halfway through the book, and as we went through those things, just by way of a very brief recap, uh, we met Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and we met John, who is our author. John is having an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus appears to John and says, John, I want you to write down everything that you see. So the book of Revelation is John writing down the vision that Jesus is giving him. And so we saw the resurrected Lord. We saw John caught up into the throne room of heaven. We got to see uh, the one who sits on the throne and there's living creatures and elders all around the throne and they're worshiping endlessly, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And we got to see the worship of heaven. We got to see the judgments of heaven begin to fall on the earth. We got to see God dealing with sin and dealing dealing with evil and starting to, uh, you know, injustice respond to the evil of this world as the different judgments fell on the world. We got to see a dragon, a great red dragon, which Revelation tells us is the devil and how the devil is involved in the affairs of the world, how he has declared war on God's people and how he is using these beasts. And that was the last chapter 13 uh, before we broke for the summer, the beast that comes out of the sea, the beast that comes out of the earth, these powers that are are sort of puppeteered by the dragon in order to attack and to persecute God's people. And so we kind of left on a bit of a dark note. We ended on Revelation 13, and it's like, hey, there's a dragon who wants to destroy us all, and there are beasts who are rising up, and they want to destroy us all. And then we said, all right, well, we'll have a break for summer. We'll pick it up in September. So that's what we're doing today, but it's about to get better because we're jumping into Revelation 14. So let's start here, starting in verse 1. Uh, as we go through today, by the way, we do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have any questions about the message, we're happy to keep that conversation going. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day and night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested." Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 16,000 stadia. Huh. All right, so, starts off more exciting than it ends, right? It starts off with, here's the lamb. Starts off right at the top with Jesus. We've just seen dragons. We've just seen beasts. It's just been dark for the people of God. And then as we move into Revelation chapter 14, it shifts back to Jesus. We actually haven't seen the lamb for a number of chapters. But verse 1 says, I looked and there before me was the lamb. There is Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his his name and his father's name written on their forehead. So this is kind of a, a counter reveal. We've just been learning about the dragon and learning about the beasts. And we talked in those sermons about what the beasts might represent. But now we're coming back to Jesus. And that's just always good news. 
It's just always good news to come back to Jesus, to be reminded, however dark the world gets, Jesus is there. Jesus is standing. The lamb is alive. And we met the lamb back in the throne room in Revelation chapter four and five. It says a lamb that had been slain and yet now was alive and sitting on the throne. And it's just always good to come back to that over and over and over again, to come back to the fact that Jesus is alive and that Jesus reigns from his throne. And we know the end of the story story, right? We know the lamb is victorious. We know that's how this story ends. And it's just such a a, a great picture of how God works, because in what world, if you were imagining a fantasy, in what world is a lamb stronger than a dragon, right? Like by all appearances, a dragon should just, you know, swallow up a lamb in 0.2 seconds. Like that shouldn't even be a fight. But there is something where God just seems to delight in taking unusual things and making them powerful. Not because they're actually powerful, but because God is powerful. That he takes the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That he takes broken vessels like us and uses us to, to fight against an enemy that on paper is stronger than us, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. God who takes a lamb and makes a lamb triumph over a dragon. I just love the imagery of that. That's not something that should happen, but God is powerful. And and the the same power that was at work in Jesus, of course, is there for us as well. The lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is more of a hill than an actual mountain, but it's a big hill. Here it is on the screen here in Jerusalem, just outside the walls of the old city. And there are a number of times in the Old Testament that talk about Mount Zion. Sometimes they're talking about it just as the literal geographical location. And sometimes Mount Zion gets used as kind of a a general term, as the place where God rules from. Because God's presence was in the temple in Jerusalem. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was where he was reigning. That picture is there. And so Mount Zion in the Old Testament a number of times gets used just kind of as a, a broad phrase, meaning the place where God rules from, kind of in the same way you might see in the news where they say, Ottawa said today that the next step of the fight of COVID is blah, 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 blah. And so Ottawa is the literal city, but it also gets used as a term, meaning the government. And so Mount Zion often is used as a term for the Lord's government, the Lord's rule. And there's a couple of Old Testament passages that say the Lord will return to Mount Zion. He will actually be there and will reign from there over creation. And so all of that is coming together in this passage that ultimately, uh, you know, however it's actually going to look, Jerusalem is always the place and will always be the place that is just the the special spot in creation. It's just God has such a heart for Jerusalem. Scripture says he has set Jerusalem at the center of the nations. Jerusalem is the center of everything, and God rules from there. His temple is there. And then one day a new heavens and a new earth will come, and the holy city Jerusalem will be somehow where we all live. We'll get to that later in the book of Revelation. So the lamb is there. Uh, I like the stained glass. Stained glass is awesome. It's super expensive. Um, but the, the time that goes into it is incredible. But the lamb is there with 144,000. We have met the 144,000 already earlier in the book of Revelation. 
Revelation and Revelation chapter 7, that 144,000 were sealed and they had the mark of God put on their foreheads. And so they were, uh, we talked about, is this perhaps an elite group of, of believers maybe? Does it represent Israel? Does it represent the church? Does it represent a little, literal 144,000? Is it a symbolic number? And you can go back and listen to the sermon again if you want to dig into all of that. Uh, my suggestion, my opinion, just an opinion, and as with many things in Revelation, I would never die on the hill of it. Uh, a lot of Revelation is mysterious, and so we, we wrestle through it, and we figure it out as best we can, prayerfully and carefully, hopefully. But the, the 144,000, to me, probably represents uh, the faithful of God's people. Not a literal number, uh, more of a symbolic number. Twelve is often the number of, of rule and governance in God's word, and so um, 12 times 12 is 144, so there's 12. Anyway, we, I won't rehash all that. You can go back and listen to it. But 144,000, the important thing is that these are ones who are marked, right? It says that on their forehead, the name of the Father and the name of the Son, the name of the Lamb are on their forehead. Very different from others that we just met in Revelation who have the mark of the beast put on their forehead. And we'll come back to that in a moment. These are the ones who walk with the Lamb. And as with all things in Revelation, uh, there are interpretations that happen. And, you know, we can debate endlessly, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? Who are the 144,000? Who's the beast? And, and has it happened or will it happen? And I actually find that fun. I love that conversation. I love the discussion about what these things could be. Uh, as long as we're being respectful and as long as we're doing that lovingly, even if we're disagreeing on certain things. But as much as we can, you know, maybe even drive ourselves crazy just trying to figure things out and what is this and what is that, the ultimate message, the thing that's not up for debate, the thing that everybody should be in agreement on is that the lamb will be victorious. That's how the story ends. And everything else is fun, and we, and we should wrestle with it, and it's important to dig into God's word, but the lamb will be victorious. That's how this story ends. Verse 2 through 5, uh, I'll jump to the second part of it there. So there's a new song that is sung. Only the 144,000 are allowed to sing this song. These are those, bottom part, who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So that might suggest that the 144,000 really are kind of an elite group, maybe, of believers. That they, they are just people who are uh, especially holy. They are especially committed. They are especially, uh, you know, walking in the path of righteousness. And that is certainly very, very possible. Uh, I have no problem with that interpretation. But there's also language there. A number of scholars I came across in studying this say a lot of that language points to kind of a, a virginal quality. The word virgin is in there. There's a purity about it that could very well mean we're just talking about the bride of Christ. We're talking about the faithful believers, right? And so, so sex in itself is not a bad thing, but we would say biblically that it is meant to be expressed within the covenant of marriage as a man and a woman come together. And so to, to say that they didn't defile themselves with women, uh, they didn't touch women at all, is not to say that that makes them special and that if you're married and sleeping with your spouse, you are less than them. But there's a, a virginal quality to it that could very well be pointing just to the purity of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ who is the God's faithful people 
people, is the church. It is anybody who is committed to Jesus. And so there's this language there uh, of, of a special purity, that there is no lie in their mouth, that they were blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless in Scripture. No one is sinless except for Jesus. Blameless means that when we do sin, we deal with it. We repent of it. We, in the Old Testament, blameless meant you offered your sacrifices and you were uh, constantly purifying yourself before the Lord so that there was nothing that could be charged against you. In the New Testament, Jesus has done that for us in one sacrifice. We don't have to keep doing that. But it's that we deal with our sin, that we, we ask for forgiveness, that we deal with our sin with one another, that we are, are not letting anything be held against us. That's what blameless means. It's not sinless. We won't get sinless until we get to heaven. But blameless means when we do sin, we are dealing with it. We are, we are seeking the forgiveness of the Lord. We are making amends with each other as we need to. We are not allowing any sin to kind of hang on us. The most important line, I think, for this group, uh, whoever they might represent, uh, and that I, I think it's just a beautiful line in the middle of Revelation, and may it be true for every single one of us, it says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Again, an interesting imagery where the lamb becomes the shepherd, right? The sheep, the lamb has, you know, not, that's not usually the way that that goes. But in this case, the lamb is the shepherd. These people who are honored in the book of Revelation are ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And my goodness, that should be our goal, right? That should be us. That should be what we're aspiring to. Every single one of us, that we follow Jesus wherever he goes. And, and we spent some time this summer talking about, you know, the way of Jesus isn't always easy. Like when you actually read through the teachings of Jesus, it's not always easy because it calls us to sacrifice. It calls us to put other people first. It calls us to put him first. It calls us to bow our knee and, and empty ourselves. It calls us to take up a cross and follow after him. The way of Jesus isn't always easy. These ones are revered in Revelation because they follow him wherever he goes, wherever he leads them. They are faithful to keep following after him. May that be true of us here at Meadowbrook Church. May we follow the lamb wherever he goes, wherever he leads us, however he takes us, may we be the same as well. Moving on, we've met the lamb and now there's gonna be a few angels, verses six and seven. An angel flying in midair, he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So there are these three angels that are, are seen next. They all have a message for the people of the earth. And, and it is certainly possible that there may literally at one point be an angel that flies in the sky. But the word angel also means messenger. And so it's possible that these are just three messages that God is releasing to the earth. And when God releases messages to the earth, he releases them typically through people. It comes through, through prophets, through apostles, through his church, that, that this would be these would be messages that are our job to share and we certainly know uh, we sang about it in the first song today like our job as the church is to proclaim this gospel martin luther said christ is the light but the church is the lantern it's our job to declare this gospel to the ends of the earth and just the beautiful unveiling of god's plan that this this whole gospel thing was meant to be global from the beginning 
not just one people group in one particular set of time, but it was meant to be global. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And so the call is fear God, give him glory. Judgment is coming. Worship him. Come back to him for everybody in the world. So there's a, a suggestion of repentance, I think, in there. Because to fear God is to say, I'm going to turn away from my sin. I'm going to come back to him. To give him glory is to come back into relationship to him, to worship him and give him the worship that he deserves. And so the gospel message comes that says Christ has come, he has died, he has risen. But the message of the gospel, the overarching part of that is be reconciled to God. The gospel message is come back to God. Like the prodigal son, come home, come back. And with that, there is repentance. And with that, we talk about the incarnation. We talk about the cross. We talk about the resurrection. That's how it all happened. But the overarching message is be reconciled to God. Come back to God. Come back to him who loves you and who gave himself for you. Come back to him who paid the price on the cross to deal with your sin and rose from the dead to deal with your death. Come back to him. And so fear God, give him glory. Turn from your sin, come back to God. The way has been opened, the invitation has been given. And we, the church, are the people who share that invitation with everybody we meet. We are the ones who share that invitation and say, come back to God. The door is open. The offer has been extended. There's a wedding feast coming. The invitations are going out. We are the ones who give the invitations out. We are the ones who point to this gospel and say, come back to God. Be reconciled to God. A second angel followed, verse 8, not as happy a message this time. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great who made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. I'm not going to dig into that. That's a provocative verse, right? You want to know what that means for sure. Uh, we're going to come back to that because we're going to meet some more uh, characters down the road who, who dig into this a little bit more. Uh, so I'm not going to get too much into that today. Uh, we will very shortly come back to the idea of wine and adultery and uh, the so-called whore of Babylon and all of those things are coming. So we will come back to that later. I will say this, uh, as we go through Revelation, this, this whole idea of Babylon comes up a lot and is going to continue to come up a lot. For anyone reading this, in the first century, for anyone who were the original recipients of this letter that John has written, uh, they would have not really had a big amount of confusion probably about what Babylon might represent. They would not be saying, oh, so one day down the road, there's going to be this great empire that, that draws worship to itself and persecutes God's people. They would not have been thinking one world order. They would not have been thinking any of those things. They would have said, oh, Babylon is, is Rome. Like, unquestionably, it would have sounded exactly like Rome to them. Uh, Babylon in the Old Testament was a large pagan empire that had invaded Israel, uh, that had killed a bunch of people, that had tried to force its religious views on the world. Uh, so they were the great enemy. Babylon's the great enemy of the Old Testament. Rome is what's happening when the New Testament is being written. It is also a large pagan empire. It is also trying to impose its religion on God's people. It's persecuting God's people fiercely. And so it would not have been a stretch for anyone reading this in the first century to say, like, right, Babylon is Rome. And so speculation, as we have outlived the Roman Empire now, as to what Babylon means in the big picture of does it mean just the world in general? Does it mean worldly government in general? Does it mean one world order that will emerge one day? We'll come back and explore all of those things in the days to come. But as always in Scripture, we're always wanting to go back initially, as we start Bible study, to say what did this mean to the people who heard it when it was written to them? 
What's the context? What's the worldview? What's going on there at that time? And then from there, we start to dig into what does it mean for us and how does it apply to us? So that is the second message. We'll come back to Babylon more in the weeks to come. And then verse 9 through 11, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. We're going to come to the lake of fire as we move through Revelation as well. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So as brutal as this sounds, there's actually grace in this because there's a warning. Right? There's a warning here that says don't do it. Don't do it. Here are the consequences of what's going to happen, but don't do it. And I know as a parent, and many of you as parents probably know, you set boundaries from your kids and you say, don't do it. And then you'll say, if you do this one more time, then X, Y, and Z are going to happen. And then the brats go and do it again on purpose. And it's like, I told you what was going to happen, and now I got to do it, guys. Like, you warn because you don't, I mean, no parent loves punishing, but you go, you, you have to set boundaries to keep your kids safe. And so you give a warning that if this happens, X, Y, and Z. So God is graciously warning the world, don't get this mark, don't worship the beast. And we spent a large amount of time in our, our last sermon before we broke for the summer talking about the mark of the beast. And, uh, and, Again, we can, you can go back and listen to all of that. That was the, the second Sunday of June that we did that one. But uh, that number 666 comes up, the number of the beast. And uh, this beast rises out of the sea and, and calls people to worship. The second beast comes, and, and they're trying to get everyone to worship the first beast, the beast out of the sea. And so as we look at that and as we reflect on that, we talked a little bit about you know what does that mark mean? What does this mean for us? What do we look at today? And we talked about how at that time, when this book was being written, uh, again, as Rome rules the world, as the emperor is calling people to worship him as a god, as Christians are feeling pressured to worship him as a god, as the whole world is, is starting, the whole known world, the civilized world is all falling under Roman rule, and many of them are worshiping emperors as gods. And at that time, you used to have to go to the temple and offer incense. You would burn incense to the emperor, worshiping the emperor as god, and then they would give you a piece of paper, like an official piece of paper, saying you offered your incense, your worship today. And then that was a required piece of paper if you were going to do any business. You had to have that paper in your hands. And so for anyone reading it in the first century, they would have said, oh, we know what that mark of the beast is. It's not literally like a tattoo is going to come on our forehead. It's that we have to prove that we're worshiping the beast or else no one will buy or sell with us. And so that was what they were living out in the first and second century. That was happening at the time. That's not to say that it can't happen again. But every once in a while, someone will send me something. This has gone on for years and years about the mark of the beast. And, oh, it's, you know, it's our social insurance numbers. That's going to be the mark of the beast or it's going to be, you know, a, a chip that they put in your hand that you scan to pay for things, and that's the mark of the beast, or it's going to be, you know, in the flu shot. Certainly it's come up again in the COVID vaccines. That's going to be the mark of the beast. And my thing is, it's like someone once sent me something because there's new technology coming where you can pay for things with your thumbprint, right? We, also, we can lock, unlock our phones now already. Apparently a time will come where we can just put our thumb on something and it will scan our thumbprint and that's how you pay for things. And they're like, well, that's it. That's the mark of the beast. And I'm going, no, that's not the mark of the beast. Jesus gave you that thumbprint. That's from him. 
That'd be super convenient. You won't have to carry a wallet around anymore. The Mark of the Beast, as we talked about it, it is all about allegiance. It's not about a, a convenient way to pay for groceries. It's about allegiance. To get the mark of the beast is to say, I am worshiping the beast. I am elevating the beast. I am bowing my knee to the beast. And that is to say, you are denying Christ. That's the problem. That's the problem, is that you are denying Christ to worship another. And so some of you have asked me about the COVID vaccines. The mark of the beast has nothing to do with the COVID vaccines. I'm not worried about that even a little bit any more than any other, you know, prescription or anything that doctors have ever recommended that we have all taken. Like, it's, it's a medical thing. It has nothing to do with allegiance. I'm not worried about that at all. I'm not saying get the vaccine. I'm saying I'm not worried about it being the mark of the beast. And so it's about the allegiance shift. And the, the punishment here is not really about, you know, if you get the mark of the beast and, and the torment is coming, it's not really about, oh, it's because you took a step and because you, you, you know, bowed a knee. It's because to engage in the mark of the beast, you have to deny Christ. And denying Christ is what keeps you out of heaven, right? That's the problem. And so it's, you know, if the next time you get a flu shot, they say, oh, as part of your flu shot, you know, all hail Emperor Trudeau or whoever's the new emperor uh, come tomorrow, then we'll talk, right? That's problematic. But, but it's so easy to over, you know, fear these things. We talked a couple of weeks ago out of Ecclesiastes 7, says don't be overwise and don't be foolish either, right? We're trying to find that sweet spot. It's possible to be so careful and so cautious and so wise that we actually go too far. Do not be overwise, but don't be foolish. Somewhere in the middle lies faith and wisdom. And so we are, are aware of these things. Our eyes are open. Our ears are open. But we're also trying very hard not to get caught up just in, in rumors and, and just seeing, you know, the enemy in behind every corner and, and being overly fearful either. And, and that's not an easy line. And we're, we're all trying to wrestle through that in lots of areas of our life. But the mark of the beast, uh, again, I, it's, I don't think it'll be something, if it's coming again, and, and it might have happened already in history and it might be over, but if it is coming again, it's not going to be something that we just kind of stumble into easily. And, and the juxtaposition is so interesting because the 144,000 also have a mark, right? They are marked by the name of the Father and of the Lamb on their forehead. And none of it, nobody looks at that and thinks that's a literal mark either. And so they're, they are marked by God, and that's the point, is that as we continue through history, it's always been this way, but as we continue through history and as we come to the end, some people on earth will be marked as belonging to Jesus Christ, some people will be marked as not belonging to Jesus Christ. Some will have given their allegiance somewhere else. And of course, we want to be found as the ones who are marked with the name of the Father and the Son. And so I don't think any of the stuff we need to take literally in terms of literal things on our hands or, or, or again, we, we tend to be really picky and choosy in Revelation. And, and I like this is literal, this is a symbol, this is literal, this is a symbol. I think that's really uh, an unfaithful way to engage in the word because I think in general you sort of have to take it as it's written. And I think it's written primarily as a symbolic picture of what's going on in the spiritual realm that is meant to teach us real things about to how we live out our lives in real life. And so so if you want to talk more about the beast and the, the mark, you can come find me afterwards. We'll talk about that there. So I have jumped around a bit here. All right, verse 12. 
So in these times where there's beasts and dragons and marks and consequences to staying faithful to Jesus, verse 12 says, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And I just thought, man, that's like a meme for any moment in life. <laughs> that's just always a great thing. That's just always true. They're talking specifically in the context of the beasts and the mark, but this is always good encouragement. Whatever we are going through, whatever struggles we are facing, however the enemy is afflicting, however we are unhappy with the empire, whatever is going on, it calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. That's our job. Stay faithful. That would I would say would be one of the main underlying messages of Revelation. Stay faithful. In the midst of persecution, stay faithful. As empires rise and fall, stay faithful. Keep God's commands and stay faithful to Jesus. That is always good advice. Romans 12 verse 10 tells us that we are to be uh, joyful in our hope. We are to be patient in affliction. We are to be faithful in prayer. That's how we're to engage with our trials. Joyfully, patiently, faithfully. It doesn't say get bitter in our trials. It doesn't say get angry at the world. It says be joyful in the hope that you have that the lamb is on the throne. Be patient when you're feeling afflicted, when you're feeling attacked, when you're feeling persecuted. Be patient. Be faithful in prayer. Be faithful to keep praying. Be faithful to keep going. That was our newest uh, member of the church, by the way. Just Pastor Sarah taking baby Kara out. <laughs> so cute. Joyful, patient, faithful. Faithful in prayer. And I've said this to you before, long before COVID, but especially during COVID, I would say, man, how much time are we spending on our phones and social media in reading articles versus how much time are we spending in prayer? Maybe if we gave up all that worldly stuff and gave all of our time to prayer, maybe we'd be done by now. <laughs> Very least, maybe we'd have, you know, better hope, better faith, better encouragement as we were going through it. We are to be joyful, patient, and faithful. Joyful, patient, and faithful. Doesn't mean we have to like everything. It means we have to be joyful and patient and faithful because that's what God's word tells us to do as we are going through our trials and tribulations of this life, whatever they are. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. If we are those ones who want to be counted amongst those who keep God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus, then patient endurance is our job. The lamb is alive and he is on the throne. Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Uh, again, if we're viewing the book of Revelation futuristically, then some would speculate that this means there's a special blessing for those who will die uh, in the end times martyrdom that may be coming. Uh, it's also fully possible that this just means from the time it was written, like from the time ultimately when Jesus died and rose from the dead, uh, there seems to be pictures in the Old Testament that when people died in the Old Testament, they didn't go straight to heaven. They were, there was kind of a waiting place because they couldn't come into the presence of God yet because Jesus had not died yet. In the New Testament, it says now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
And so there's a, a shift apparently that has happened. And so anyone who dies in the Lord on this side of the cross gets to rest from their labor. They get to go and be in the presence of God forever. And there's an interesting juxtaposition because we just read the ones who follow the beast and have his mark will receive no rest whatsoever. There will be no rest day or night. For those who are marked by the name of the Father and the Lamb, they will rest. We get to experience rest. We will experience peace in his presence. There is rest and refreshing for us, uh, not for those who are marked with the beast. And so Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. And we, we read that at funerals all the time. But it just reminds us that the view of death shifts for us. Uh, as followers of Jesus. It doesn't mean we're reckless with our lives or we're suicidal or, or looking for it and, and you know, running for it, but precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants, that for us, death is a loss here, that we experience that loss. There's a hole in our lives. Something is missing. But for God, it's a great day when one of his saints comes home. For God, it's face-to-face reunion. It is face-to-face back to the way he always wanted it to be. For the person who's dying, it's a really good day. That is a really good day. We had, uh, I did not know Neil Clausen. I know many of you would have. Uh, Neil was gone from the church before I got here, but he's related to many people, and Neil passed away last week. And I know just in talking to many of you, uh, we have many family members of Neil's who are in the church, and we've been praying with you this whole time. Uh, many of you knew him as a friend and as a brother in the Lord. And just in talking to many of you about Neil, who, again, I didn't know, but just getting the sense and hearing the stories of just, oh, Neil, uh, you know, passed away, and it's heartbreaking for his wife and for his kids and his grandkids, and we need to continue to rally to them. But for Neil, there was no other place he wanted to be. He wanted to be with his Savior. He wanted to be with Jesus. Uh, Frank Dick passed away as well. Uh, Frank was a longtime member of the church. He passed away on Friday. Uh, you might not have known him for many years. He was confined to the Mennonite home and wasn't able to get out. But um, I would go visit Frank regularly, and, and we built up a good friendship over the years. And any time I went to see Frank for the last seven years, like once a month or so for seven years, every time I went to see him, he would say, uh, we would close. I would say, can I pray for you? Anything I could pray for? And he's like, just pray I see Jesus. He's like, I'm just so ready to see Jesus. His wife had already passed away. He was in his 90s, and, and he was just really, really excited to go and be in the presence of God. He was really, really excited to see his wife again and his parents and other loved ones who had gone before him. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. That Frank's in a great place today. He is at peace and he is resting with the Lord that he loved. For God, it was a great day because it was precious in his sight. For Frank, it's an amazing day. And that is what death is for us as followers of Jesus. Moving to the last part, a couple of harvests here, two different harvests. Verse 14 through 16, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. This is probably 
uh, pointing to an end times event. And Jesus would teach on a great harvest day coming, where, where the, the ones who had been uh, saved, the ones who had committed themselves to Jesus would be harvested to heaven. The ones who had not done that would be harvested as well, and they would stand before God for their judgment day. And so this is probably referring to that. Uh, the one on the cloud who looks like a son of man is probably Jesus. Um, Jesus is the one who claims that title, son of man, a lot in scripture. And so it's probably him. It could be an angel as well, uh, but probably Jesus, I think. And this picture that gets used in scripture of uh, a harvest will come at the end, and uh, what is being harvested are the people, the souls of the people. And so some people believe that there will be a great end times harvest that comes before Jesus returns, that before Jesus returns, there will be this great uh, just push in the church of evangelism, and many, many people will come to the Lord, and then Jesus will return. Some people believe that it is one and the same. When Jesus returns, that's when the harvest will happen, and, and everyone will be gathered up to him. And so it's interesting, and this is where Greek Bible study can be super fun, right, Ben? It's fun sometimes to dig into the specific here because there's two harvests here there's one harvest that we're reading about now and then there's a an angry harvest we'll say that's coming next and in both of them it says the time is ripe both harvests it said the time is ripe so go and and harvest those things but there's two different words used for ripe so in the second harvest of the grapes it says that the the fruit is ripe and it just means they're mature they're ready to go. In the first harvest in the harvest of people that we're talking about the word for ripe there actually means like overripe and starting to wither a little bit. And it's interesting cuz two harvests side by side they use different words for ripe in there. This first one it says it's actually it's it's still good the harvest is still good but it's starting to it's beginning to wither. And what that suggests is that God has left this as long as he possibly can. He has left the end as long as he possibly can. He has left judgment as long as he possibly can. Scripture says that he is not slow in keeping his promises. He is being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. So God's delay in his return is not out of anything other than mercy. It's grace. He is giving us as much time as possible. But when it talks about this harvest and says the harvest is actually now starting to turn a little bit, still good, but starting to wither, it's okay, well, there can be no more delay. You can't delay that harvest anymore. The harvest has to come. We can't wait any longer. It suggests that God's patience has been ever present, but there is just literally no time left. The harvest has to happen. He has waited and waited and waited and waited. He has given every opportunity, but now it has to happen. And it leads into the second harvest, and, and I, I don't think I'll read all of it, just in the interest of time, verse 17 through 20. There was a harvest that I think points to the souls of people, and then there's a harvest related to the wrath of God. The grapes are ripe, and the, the grapes are taken, and they're thrown into the winepress of God's wrath because we're about to head into the final judgments upon the earth. And uh, throughout scripture, there's different places where wine is used as a symbol of God's wrath. Sometimes wine is spoken of in the Old Testament as a blessing. Sometimes, uh, probably more so, wine is spoken of in the Old Testament with a warning as something to be, to be very, very careful of, if not maybe avoided for some of us. And then at times, wine is a picture of God's anger. It's a picture of his wrath. And so we are about to head into a couple of chapters where the final phases of God's judgments are going to be poured out upon the earth 
earth. And, and again, at this point, it seems like we are almost certainly moving into end times type stuff. Uh, however, we're interpreting the book of Scripture or the book of Revelation in Scripture. And, you know, we've talked about judgment already. It's a major theme of Revelation. It's not easy to think about. Uh, it's not pleasant to think about. And yet, as we often say when we talk about this, if God is not judging sin, then he can't be good. He can't be. He can't be a good God and just let evil go unchecked and let it carry on forever. You can't call that God good. If he's going to be good, he must deal with it. You can't say that he's just. If he is just letting injustice go on forever, then that is not a just God. In his goodness, in his justice, he has to reach a point where he says no more. He has to reach a point where he says the evil, the sin, it stops now. I will judge it and I will deal with it and I will set things right. And although it's not easy to think about, uh, you know, I'm sure we all have loved ones and we don't know what happens to them if they stand before the Lord today. We're not sure where they're at or maybe we are sure where they're at and that's scary. Um, and, and that's the heavy part about all of this. And part of that for us is it is continually our job to be faithful in prayer and continually our job to share that gospel and to continue that call to the world of be reconciled to God. That is, uh, should put an urgency in us towards that. And we also remind ourselves when we think about what has been done for us, like God has done everything possible for us to avoid these consequences. He's done everything possible. And he, he set out his law, and he said, these are the boundaries. And, and he made it very clear. This is sin, and, and this is what I expect of you. So no one can say God hasn't communicated clearly to us what he wants us to do. And even when we haven't done that, he has sent prophets to warn us, prophets to call us back to him. And that wasn't enough to solve the whole thing. So ultimately, he sends his son. And Jesus comes and he lives among us and he lives perfectly and he teaches us the way to live and he models for us the perfection of God's law, a life of love of God and love of neighbor, even love of enemy. And he shows us what that looks like. And then he goes to the cross for us to bear the weight of our sin. And then he rises from the dead for us to overcome death for us that we could follow him, not just in his moral teachings, that we will follow him in resurrection as well. And then he has continued sending prophets, sending apostles, sending warnings, finishing the New Testament for us. Like, what else could God have done to save us from that end? We are the ones who are crossing the lines. We are the ones who are walking in sin. We are the ones like sheep who have gone astray and who have turned to our own ways. Like, we, we are the ones who keep doing that. God has done everything possible to save us from that end. So as heavy as these things are, we have to put it in perspective of what he has done to deliver us out of all of these things. And what is our role then as those who have been delivered? What is our job now? Come on up, worship team. We're just about ready to wrap up. We called 2021 a year of thriving. We didn't talk about it too much over the summer. But we wanted to talk this year about thriving, and it was in the context of COVID for sure in the season that we're in. But separate from that as well, just how do we thrive? How are we thriving in, in this season or any other season? How are we walking closely to the Lord? How are we finding that contentment? The Apostle Paul said, I've learned the secret to being content no matter what I'm facing. I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret to being content no matter what I'm facing. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
It's not really a secret, and it's not really like a here's three things to check off your list. It's Jesus is the solution to being content no matter what. And if we ever find ourselves not content, if we ever find ourselves out of peace, if we ever find ourselves you know, frustrated and angry and, and annoyed and, and losing our peace, then that doesn't need to be a problem, but that should be the indicator light in our life that says, hey, you haven't gotten back to that secret place of contentment with the Lord. Because no matter what we're facing, there is peace and contentment available. No matter what. If the government kicked in the doors and secret police came in and took us all to jail and we were sitting in jail cells, there would be peace and contentment available in the jail cell. That's what the Apostle Paul lived out. And that's what he taught by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if we're, if we're overwhelmed with anything but peace and contentment, that should just be a sign to us, hey, I'm not connecting with the Lord the way that I should. I'm not in that place of communion with him because he is the one that is my peace. He is the one that makes me content. He is the one, no matter what earthly circumstances are happening, he is the one that does that for me in his goodness. So how do we thrive in this time? We thrive when we frame everything, we reframe it into that picture of our job is we are to patiently endure. That is the call upon us as the faithful. Patiently endure. That doesn't mean we have to like everything. It doesn't mean we won't speak up about things at times. It doesn't mean we might not take a step at times. But we are called to patiently endure and to continue to patiently endure, to keep going, to not stop, to remain faithful to God's commands and to be faithful to Jesus, to stay in that place of peace, to continue to press into that place of peace. When we're out of peace, to not be okay with that. Right? When we've lost our peace, not just to go, well, that's the way it is. No, like to actually recognize that pattern in my life and say, okay, how do I get back to that place of intimacy with the Lord? Where do I meet with him in my life? Where have I felt close with him in my life? To go back to those places and receive the peace and contentment that only come from the Holy Spirit, regardless of what we're facing. We're going to thrive, honestly, when we, like that angel, are people who proclaim to the world, be reconciled to God who proclaim to the world the Father loves you and would love to welcome the prodigals back home. That Jesus loves you and he loves you so much that he died for you. That there is a way back to God. And that is where all the peace in the world lies in being right with him and at home with him. We will thrive as we do that as well. When we don't do these things, we will be out of step with the Holy Spirit, out of step with the will of God. And we can't thrive when we're out of step with the Holy Spirit. And so we come back to him, we reunite with him, and then we invite others to come and join us in communion with the living God. The lamb will be victorious. That is how the story ends. And Jesus is the rock that we stand on in everything. We want to worship him for a few more minutes before we go. So I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet, please, at home. Turn up the volume, sing loudly with us as well as we worship Jesus, and then we will close in prayer.